This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Sky History's Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we'll be uncovering the story of our pioneering Black British footballers and finding out what we can learn from their experiences and their long history in the beautiful game. And to do that, I've got two fantastic experts on board, both sports journalists, writers and broadcasters, the brilliant Rodney Hines and the epic Anne-Marie Batson. But first, let's roll back the clock to 1930. Standing in the small, wintry South Yorkshire Cemetery of Edlington, the pauper's grave in front of us is about to receive one of the best British football players of the late 19th century. Arthur Wharton, who died at the age of 63, was a well-known athlete and footballer. Opening the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, his obituary read, He was a goalkeeper of repute and played with Preston North End, Sheffield United, Stockport County, Rotherham and Denneby. But there's one thing this obituary of Arthur Wharton leaves out. He was black. Now, football has a very long history. Many trace its popularity as a sporting pastime to the 18th century, But by the middle of the Victorian era, there was enough interest, players and spectators for the sport to become professional. The English Football Association, today's FA, was formed in 1863 and became powerful enough to create a professional league in 1885. Three years later, there were 12 professional clubs in the UK, as well as a host of popular amateur clubs feeding them players. It's important to understand as well that women's football was also popular at this time. In fact, before the First World War, women's matches drew much larger crowds than the professional men, which sadly led to the FA banning their games in 1921, out of the supposed fear that it was bad for their bodies. But this episode isn't going to focus on women in football, maybe we'll save that for next season. Today, I want to talk about the long history of our black British footballers, and it may surprise you to learn that that history is a very old one. So let's start with Arthur Wharton, the first black professional footballer to play in Britain. Born in Jamestown, West Africa in 1865, both of Arthur's parents were mixed race. They were both half Scottish, and then on his father's side, Grenadian, and his mother's Ghanaian. 
Arthur arrived in the UK in his late teens with a dream of becoming a missionary teacher. But it was during his studies here that he realised a love and a serious talent for sport. Arthur set a new world record in 1886 when he ran 100 yards in just 10 seconds. This brought him to the attention of Preston North End Football Club and then Rotherham United where he became goalkeeper in 1889. His professional career continued into the 20th century and he should be celebrated as one of the north of England's greatest sporting heroes. We know he sadly ended his life in poverty, but for a man whose death was reported with deep regret in the Sheffield newspapers, how did this history of one of our best early footballers become forgotten? To find out more about these early pioneers of the game, I've called on an expert who has researched and written about them. I'm joined today by Rodney Hines, and he's the sports editor for The Voice, Britain's leading black newspaper and co-founder for the football blacklist. He's also the author of a number of books, including Black Lions, the story of black footballers in England. Rodney, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell me a little bit about your work with the football blacklist? Set up and created with my good friend and colleague, Leon Mann. Um, There's no real rocket science to the football blacklist. It was just simply a scenario where we sat down in my office one day and suggested that what could we do for our community within football? Now, obviously, we're all aware of what the players are doing from our community, earning lots of money, being very influential within their teams, getting a lot of respect that their, their predecessors didn't get. So in terms of the playing side, we knew that was um, being highlighted. And I think what we decided to do was say, what about those in administration, management, mm. coaching, uh, and the various other roles that, that they are obviously playing. You know, while people are talking about things like Black Lives Matter, they've mattered for a long time. They've been doing mm-hmm. some tremendous work, unheralded, and I think that's really what the Football Blacklist is about. It's about um, highlighting the many, many positive roles that black people are playing within the beautiful game. Because this is something that has a really long history that hasn't been acknowledged really by the wider public before. Mm. And that's yeah. something that you, you've really dug into, especially with writing Black Lions, which looks specifically at the history of black footballers in England. Can you tell me a little bit about the early pioneers of the game? Yeah, I mean, you're obviously you're talking about the Arthur Whartons, the Andrew Watsons, the Walter Tolls. Uh, you could include Jack Leslie in there as well, um, who's been in the news of late as well. Um, Those three, those four, for example, we often use the term pioneers and trailblazers, genuinely so. When there was no money, there was no kudos, there was no respect. Um, They silently did what they needed to do on the football field um, against a backdrop of negativity. Everybody um, that we mentioned had a price to pay. The, the, The football was almost the last part you know, it was about being abused in the street, being abused in the stadium, whether that be by teammates or opposition. Um, so in regards to Black Lions, those four as early pioneers, and it's interesting, I, I, I came across um, a young man called Ben Odoje, 
um, recently. I did an interview in The Voice, and he was actually um, the first black player, even before Laurie Cunningham and Pivadison, by the way, because he played for England schoolboys. Wow. And he was very, very keen to share his story with me. Slightly disappointed as well that he didn't get the recognition he deserved. So what I think I've learned is that you think you know football, but you don't really. It's only when you really go digging um, that you find out the true stories. So let's set the scene a little. Arthur Wharton is the first black professional player who signs for Rotherham Town in 1889. And Andrew Watson, who you also mentioned, is our first black international player because he plays for Scotland. At, at this time, sort of the end of the 19th century, we don't tend to see black representation in sport in terms of our, our historical memory of this time. And obviously through your work, you know these players are there. They're there, they matter, they were recognised at the time and they were acknowledged mm. at the time. Can you tell me a little bit about what their experiences were like as 19th century black footballers? Their achievements are even greater than, you know, the Raheem Sterlings and the Theo Walcotts of today. And there's nothing to do with money here. It's just about being allowed to do your job, which is play football. It wasn't a level playing field. I think that's the only thing I can say. It was bad enough getting grief from opposing fans. Never mind being accepted. Just walking down the street was a challenge for some of these guys back then. Um, so it was difficult. But what I, find, what I found fascinating was that footballers that suffer use, what they always said to me was that the best way to deal with it is by performing on the field of play. You know, there's no, no type of retribution. It was always a case of we're going to show them. And that's what Watson and Wharton and Toll did because history suggests that they were actually very good footballers. I think that the, the trait that comes through for me is that they wanted to prove themselves on the field of play. And this is despite what was going on um, in terms of racism and abuse. So Jack Leslie represented Plymouth Argyle at the time and was called up to represent England in 1925 before being left out of the final squad. What's your interpretation as, of these events as they seem kind of mysterious? Um, I must say, I, I smiled a little bit when I read that. You could see it happening that a very talented black footballer at the time, obviously doing what he, he did so well at Plymouth, getting this call up. And you can see maybe the Football Association, as they call it, the ivory towers, the, the guys in the suits saying, no, that can't happen. There can't be representation with the three lines by a black person. He obviously had ability and that ability shone through enough for him to get the call up. And I think that's, that's really, really sad because um, obviously the England football team missed out. Jack Leslie missed out. And it's interesting to see that, you know, supporters at Plymouth Argyle are, are raising funds for um, some sort of monument to, to, to Jack Leslie to go up outside the home park. That says it all. If, if Plymouth Argyle and, and amongst those fans must be historians and those that know the club, if they believe that a monument is due to him after all this time, he has clearly paid his part. So what's the beautiful game like at this time? Because we it's not the kind of celebrity action-packed 
bells and whistles, you know, huge stadiums that we tend to think of as football today. It's a very different type of game. It's much closer to community. It's much more engaged with ordinary people, seeing ordinary people on the pitch doing amazing things. Can you tell us a little bit about football at this time, sort of at the end of the 19th century? Well, I think you talk about it being the beautiful game. I think then it would have been quite an ugly game. It was that outlet for men and women, ordinary men and women. And so to for black players to play within that audience must have been hugely challenging. I mean, this was press reports that, you know, even if they were performing well on the field of play, the press report wouldn't suggest that, or they might have been airbrushed out of the reports. It's almost like they didn't matter. So they had to live with that challenge. Where does a black player in those times go? I mean, there is no kick it out or show races in the red card. You have to go home. Uh, you have to go home. You have to go home to your family. Um, and you have to deal with all the things that you've just suffered or you continue to suffer and then turn up for training and then to play again in that same negative environment. I think when we, when we look at the Victorian period, when black people are acknowledged, the voices that we hope will be calling for their success and, their, and for respect are in a constant minority. They are there, but they are not the dominant voices that we're seeing in the press. That must be incredibly frustrating to find in the past as someone who's researching in that period. Working in the media myself, even though a different strand, after 30 years more in the business, I realised that the media plays such an important role in terms of people's thinking. Yeah. And when you still have a Raheem Sterling, still in recent times, having to put it out there that the media hasn't been kind to them in 2020, with all that's going on in the world. So you go back to the time of Tal, Wharton and Watson. What chance did they have? You know, what chance did they have? But as I said, I think that the media has slowly, and it's been painfully slow, and it's still not where it should be. I think the media has such an important role to play in terms of influencing people's thoughts about other people. Um... And when I wrote my book, I did always think, what must it have been like for these guys? So I saw some of the press clippings. And as I said, you know, some of the people we're talking about were almost airbrushed out of match reports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could have scored three goals. You could have done something amazing. You could have set up the three goals. But it's like they didn't exist. And not much has changed when you really think about it. And that's what really scares me that we're still having to talk about the media and its influence. Because of what the media is, it's that conduit, isn't it? It's the conduit between the players or whatever the subject is relating to black people and the general public. Mm. And that conduit hasn't always been good. And as you quite rightly said, it's not just about sport and football. The media has a role to play. And as I said, I saw some of those clippings when I was doing my research and it was like, tell. Wharton, Watson, they didn't exist. 
Let's talk a little bit about perception and how the media can can change things, especially about our historical past. Now, in 2017, Emma Clark was revealed as our first black female footballer playing for the British ladies in 1895. But subsequent research has cast doubt on whether newspaper reports were accurate in describing her race. Some say that she's black, some say that she's British Asian, some say that she's mixed race, some say that she's white. There seems to be a lot of confusion from the what's left to us from the source material and and how those have been interpreted either way we know that women were playing in the and and have a place in football at this time what can you do you think we have a duty to really unpick the past and and find more references and find a better understanding of the women's game at this time I think we do have that duty I think that the women's game has made fantastic strides what 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 I what certainly happened to me when I heard about Emma Clark three three or so years ago, because I'd never heard about her, you know with all my research and so called knowledge, I'd never known about her. But what it did for me, never mind the women's game, it gave me a boost because I think we do have a duty, as you quite rightly said, to to, to reference this and find out because we're almost saying, oh, um, the women's game, it's this almost this new this new thing absolute nonsense it's been going on forever it's just the case of who's going to take the time or the skill or the patience to unearth the emma clarks no matter what the controversy may be about her background what that did for the women's game was give it a tremendous shot in the arm i think that we have um, a duty as you quite rightly said to continue to find those stories because i think when you start digging as researchers and journalists you're invariably going to find more than you anticipated so it, no, it may not just be about Emma Clark, it might be somebody prior to that. And I'd put a little wager, there's probably someone prior to that as well. Because that's, that's the nature of, of, of research, isn't it? You, you go looking for one thing, you're very focused on the one thing, and then boom, you find something else. Absolutely. So yeah, Emma Clark, well done. Um, fantastic story. And I think that the women's game should pursue the research of her and others. I think what we're finding is that we are starting to see the past with what feels to us like new eyes, but it's actually just a clearer frame. It's a clearer understanding of what was actually happening at that time. Because in the last hundred years, and I mean really specifically on the 20th century here, that's when these, these erasures have happened. That's when these people have passed from reality into memory and then into being forgotten. And it's our 20th century history that we really have to pick apart to see where it went wrong, where it went wrong in, in this erasing of these, of these voices and in, and in, and in these lives, because they are all there, which you found for, through your own research as a journalist, which I find through, as a historian, we know these people lived, they loved, they had successes, they had tragedies, they had trials, but they were present in our lives and, and shaped our society. Um, I spoke, to the likes of, say, Garth Crooks, um, Luther Blissett, and they paid homage to Viv Anderson, Laurie Cunningham, because if you're in an industry where you're not wholly accepted, what you do need is someone that looks and sounds like you in the same industry, which is almost saying to you, you can do it as well. So when Cyril Regis sadly died a few years ago, 
the amount of 70s and 80s footballers that say, if it wasn't for Cyril, I wouldn't be playing football. Because one, they know his story, what he had to go through, England call-up, feces in the post, bullets in the post, having got an England call. Yeah? So the likes of Andrew Cole, Garth Crooks, Luther Blissett, uh, Jason Roberts, they all paid homage to, to Cyril when he sadly passed. So that's why I'm saying the research that people like yourself do and others is important because if you can unearth the Emma Clarks, however tenuous, it gives hope and a link to those playing now. Because it's heritage. It's yeah, heritage, absolutely. Isn't it? Absolutely right. You know, so um, yeah, I think. Um, they say if you look at, you know, if you don't know anything about your past, your future can be quite uncertain. I mean, it's an often used term, role models, but I think we need more of them. Understanding we all have a shared heritage in this country, whatever the colour of our skin, is really important to me. And I think we really have to move away from this idea that black British history is somehow new or modern. It isn't. Black British history has been alongside us for centuries. So what does that mean for our black British footballers? Thanks to Rodney's mention of him, I want to know more about Walter Tull. Born in 1888, while Arthur Wharton was playing for Preston North End, Walter Tull was the grandson of a slave who'd arrived in the UK from Barbados in 1876. His father, Daniel, had married a girl from Folkestone, and it was here that Walter was born, in that famous seaside town of Kent. By the time he was 20, in 1908, Walter was in London, training to be a printer and playing for the local football team in Clapton. It was at one of these matches that a scout from Tottenham Hotspur saw his talent, and soon after that he signed for their team for the princely sum of £10, the highest sum a professional footballer could get at that time. His wages were £4 a week, and he played for Tottenham until 1910, then moving to Northampton Town. By 1914, in the middle of negotiations for his next move to Glasgow Rangers, The First World War broke out. Walter gave up his football career to serve in the army, where his leadership qualities were quickly recognised, seeing him promoted first to sergeant and then by 1917 to second lieutenant. He was a brave and courageous soldier, but on the 25th of May 1918, he died at the Somme in the First Battle of Bapaume. An account from an unidentified soldier describes its horrors. What remains in my memory of that day is the constant taking up of new positions, followed by constant orders to retire, terrible blocks on the roads, inability to find anyone anywhere, a complete absence of food of any kind, except what could be picked up from abandoned dumps. The terrible conditions and tragedies of the First World War unite us all in history. And that Walter Tull went from leading men on a football pitch to leading them into battle doesn't surprise me. But what does surprise me is that it's taken us this long to recognise his contribution, both as a soldier and a footballer. We are well aware today of the racism still faced by our black British footballers on and off the pitch. So to find out more about how we can face up and stamp out this historic abuse, my next guest is a brilliant sports broadcaster with a strong family connection to the game. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Anne-Marie Batson is a sports broadcaster appearing regularly on the BBC and Sky Sports and podcasts such as The Beautiful Game. She is also a supporter of organisations such as Kick It Out. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining me today. What made you become a sports broadcaster? Firstly, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to do this podcast. Um, It really happened after 2012, London 2012, watching it, being inspired by it. And I sat there thinking, this is this is amazing the way that the whole country has come together, the way the whole world's come together to celebrate sport. Before that, I'd always wanted to work in sport, but different avenues and different pathways were created for me. And I made different decisions about things. And it was always in the back of my mind. I always thought broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting. I just didn't appreciate how big the challenge was going to be for me. <laughs> so you really, you have pursued this dream for your love of sport and your love of broadcasting to become someone who is an authority now in our sports world. And that's really important, I think, to see, to have a female voice. Is representation of women in sports something that is also really key, you think, for you? It's got better. It has got better. I remember as a child and I'll be watching Grandstand or another sports news programme at the weekend and Helen Rawlinson was my idol when I was growing up she was somebody from Essex where I'm from so you know you got to represent and support <laughs> and um, I love the way that she was just very conversational very relaxed very natural but just loads of knowledge and, and understanding about sports similar to what Claire Balding her style very much that just really relaxed very informative which is what I'm striving to be and at that time Helen Ronson was probably one of the very few women working in sport and particularly in football and then you started to see others started to come through like the late Vicky Orweiss who worked for The Sun and and, uh, Gabby Logan and others it has got better as I said but there's still a long way to go particularly on the print side I would say for the sports back pages there is still some work that needs to be done but organisations are taking those steps. I just wish it wouldn't take so long for me. It just feel like it's a bit of a snail's pace at the moment. And people say to me, but that's change, Amory. You can't expect things to happen overnight. Well, we should be demanding more then, if that's the case. I don't accept that as an excuse, not a valid one. Anyway, we've got the resources, the technology now. What's the issue? Is it the job market? Is there um, 
people staying in their jobs for a certain period of time, which I completely understand, particularly in this market, the financial world. Or is it a case there are still some gatekeepers out there who don't wish to see more women and people of colour, black people, Asian people and others working in sports media? I don't think that's the case, but the drawbridges are still up a little bit. There's a little bit of a jar, but they need to just come down a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. And I'd like to see the pace quicken for that. Now, my my gran is an Essex girl, well, was an Essex girl and also a journalist, as was as was my mum. And I think for for women in journalism, through from the 1950s to today, there has always been a feeling that if you are a female journalist or a female broadcaster, you are somehow abnormal or different in the field. And that whilst they haven't had the opportunities, they are there. They're, they're present. Women want these jobs. They want to be part of it. They want to be seen to be doing them. They want to have that authority. They want to have that opportunity. How do we encourage young women, young women of colour to, to see these opportunities as something they can reach for as well? I think encouragement is a word that is quite subjective. It depends what type of encouragement that is, is needed. For me, it was London 2012. That's all that I needed. I just thought if I don't take my opportunity... When am I going to get the chance again? And that's how I started. I'd like to think that we will have women and people of colour and other groups have every right to work in whatever industry they choose. And that should be enough motivation for anybody. You have no reason to justify. That's why when I get, um, you know, attacked on social media for a certain comment what you know women working in football you don't know what you're talking about who are you to tell me what I can do with my life and how I earn my money it's none of your business quite frankly so um, if I want to work in sport I don't I have to defend or justify my reasoning and for me that's enough encouragement and another way to encourage I guess with young people especially young women is that you have a voice already use it if you want to talk about sport please do we would welcome it with open arms the more voices the more diversity we have in the industry could only make things much better than what they are the thing that keeps me going is that i want this and there's nothing in the world that will change my mind or deviate me from my path i think that's a really powerful self-belief that we need to really inspire in young women and in in young people of color today to have that self-determination and that knowledge that they can if they have a dream you go for it no matter what now your uncle Brendan Baston was a footballer for Arsenal Cambridge United and West Bromwich Albion how much do you know about his experiences it's something that you grew up with did it shape you I'm very aware of Uncle Brendan's history and I will have to call him Uncle Brendan throughout because he would tell me off if I just called him by his first name by the way so forgive me on that one I didn't really know about it until I until my early teens I would say my first memory of knowing Uncle Brendan was famous was when he came to visit with uh, my late aunt and their kids and then suddenly there's a knock on the door and there's a bunch of boys outside our front door wanting to speak to Uncle Brendan and get his autograph and then he's signing shirts and um <laughs> comic books and things like that and that's when I I said to my dad you know what's this all about kind of thing in a inquisitive way and and my dad explained and and then after that uh, I think my uncle then retired because of injury and then he went to work on the governance side of football but it wasn't as I said it wasn't until I was in my early teens that he and I would talk about 
football and talk about his history and you know my dad worked as a coach as well as playing at lower level football so I had both sides of it I had that understanding of of what took place on the pitch from my dad's side um, but also from my uncle's side he could tell me what goes on on the pitch but also what happened in terms of in the stands and within the football industry itself and uncle Brendan would tell me the stories and Every time I I think about it or when I tell people about it, it upsets me so much because I cannot imagine what it was like for him. How could I imagine what it was like to know that you're in the changing room and you can hear the monkey chants already and you haven't even stepped out onto the pitch yet. And and that's the thing. The whistle hasn't gone for play. You're still in the changing room and you're hearing the noise coming already. And then you step out. You walk down through the tunnel onto the pitch and the noise, the disgusting monkey chants get louder and louder. Every time you kick the ball or the ref gives a decision against you or something like that. And then he would tell me certain grounds were notorious for this kind of abhorrent behaviour. And then he said, what also was challenging, and my dad would talk about this and my mum as well, it was at that time in the late 70s, early 80s where... The National Front were very, very strong. They had a strong following, particularly through football. So you'd leave the stadium and, or you you know, you go after the game, you leave the stadium and you see a bunch of National Front skinheads waiting outside to recruit, in inverted commas. So you're dealing with that. You go home, you switch on the TV and then you've got silly programmes like Love Thy Neighbour and the Black and White Minstrel Show and Alf garnet nonsense coming back at you through the tv with all the silly stereotypes and myths about black people so you got that as well and then you switch on the radio and you're listening to a news report about the government it would have been mrs thatcher at that time challenging immigration so not only are you getting it at your place of work you're getting it from wider society and then people obviously coming up to you and pointing their finger at you and telling you oh you've taken my job and dark you know calling them darky the n-word the w-word and the c-word and so on and so forth so they got it all the time the black community and my uncle him and the late laurie cunningham and cyril regis as well as other black footballers like clyde best luther blissett um viv anderson others i could name they carried a lot of weight of representation on their shoulders because the black community had people that looked like them who were achieving at the upper echelons of sport and it gave them that sense of yeah now we do belong because if we can compete at football and we're recognized in society we have value we have worth so yeah so to answer your question I was aware of it but I didn't really appreciate it until my early teens and as I've got older and I've learned more and I've just reeled off a whole load of other names of of black men who played at the highest level and seeing how things have changed for them you know in the late 70s early 80s if you complained about getting racist abuse and some players like uh, Paul Cannonville a former Chelsea player he's talked about getting it from his own supporters Mm. and some footballers black footballers would talk about the lack of support that they would get from the clubs they were told to just go out there and do their jobs if you fast forward to today and think about people like Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford and Tyro Mings using their platforms to challenge racism and systemic racism as well as other social issues can you imagine a club turning around to Raheem Sterling and saying we don't want you talking about that it would just cause an absolute uproar so to go from that place of being able to go out onto the field of play and 
shutting people up by showing you what you you, you could do in the case of my uncle and, and Laurie and Cyril and various others around at that time as well and turning the other cheek moving forward to Ian Wright who wasn't going to take any nonsense whatsoever and would tell you that be the case and then for, fast forward again to today to Raheem Sterling who were consistently challenging systemic racism you see how things have changed over the years we're talking about the importance that popular culture really plays in being a force of, of good in society, whether that's sports culture or entertainment culture or media culture. It's all the biggest drivers of change in, in our society and of making sure that whatever people need to happen can happen. It's not actually politics at the end of the day. It's, it's popular culture that makes the difference. And one of the things that I hope we can do when we're looking at, at black representation in football is to really push forward this history because it's not just the last 30 years. It's not just the last 50 years. This is a long history of black representation in football that we really need to bring to the foreground. Is there anything that we can do to make sure that in this moment of focus and celebration and power that is pushed forward by Black Lives Matter, that we can push forward our historical representation as well and make sure that that long history isn't lost. If we go back even further in history, the names Arthur Walton, Walter Tull, Jack Clesley, they're already, particularly with Arthur Walton and Walter Tull, they are two probably the most recognised names of black men who played football from the 1800s, 1900s, upwards. Walter Tull uh, fought in the First World War and tragically lost his life in the Battle of the Somme. And But he's recognised for his contribution to football. Arthur Wharton is seen as somebody who was recognised as the first professional black footballer in this country. Jack Leslie, there's a crowdfunding uh, campaign going on right now because he was somebody who was a prolific striker for Plymouth Argyle in the 1920s. Found out he was going to be part of the England squad and there was a bit of a campaign to get his name onto the list. His name was on the list. The next day, his name was off the list and replaced by a white man. Make of that what you will. Well, there's something about that, isn't it? In that we, we, we see huge moments of local community support. And then when it moves up the chain, when it moves up the system to a, high, to a different level, suddenly we see racism come in we see bigotry come in and it's the erasure of these players who at their local community level are celebrated and seen as victorious and seen as incredibly powerful and yet somehow something happens or at least this racism in in the system comes in that's something that we're still dealing with today isn't yes it? but i would also say to that that even in society, even in those times, because there is this myth that black people only came over to England as part of the Windrush generation of the late 1940s, 50s onwards. There were black people here, people of colour living here way before that. Way. Yeah, any century. Yeah. Pick any century you like in Britain, you will find black people living in Britain Ex and black British people. Exactly. And you talk about, you know, the fantastic achievements of Arthur Walton and Walter Tull and Jack Leslie. The problem is, though, they were still dealing with society issues. They were still dealing with the fact that people didn't like them because of the, the colour of their skin. I used the word darky earlier. That's how they were referred to. And good luck trying to find accommodation in certain parts of England because they didn't want you. They didn't want the blacks. They didn't want the Irish. They didn't want the dogs. 
which still happened in the 40s, 50s and 60s and early 70s until changes in the law. So, yes, recognise their achievements and all three of them. And now, obviously, with Jack Leslie now becoming more to the fore, because I didn't know about his story until a few months ago. I knew about Walter Tull, I knew about Arthur Wharton, but I had no idea about Jack Leslie. And I think what happened to him was absolutely horrific. And now, as I mentioned, there's a crowdfunding campaign going to he had a big moment in history that was snatched from him and you know there is a suggestion that his name was taken up it's not been official but you know anybody could read between the lines and think well you know one minute he's on the list the next minute he's not but he's the prolific striker for Plymouth Argyle it didn't make any sense so they're still having to deal with the crowd even though they'd achieved so much they're still having to deal with football supporters doing the monkey chance, they're still having to deal with society issues, being looked down as less than within society. The irony is with somebody like Arthur Walton, he came to this country to better himself. He came from a well, um, a well-known, privileged family and he came here to do his studies. He came here from a British Connolly. He came here to the motherland, to the mother country and when he got here, he was treated abominably, just like um, others who came over here. Albert Hiawa Hansen is another person from South Africa, played for Leeds um, in the 50s, 60s, treated appallingly by this country. So it's we celebrate them now because we see how fantastic they were as, as players and goalkeepers, but we forget that they were living in times that still did not accept them for who they, they were. And to also add to that point about the hierarchies as you go up, the point I would make back today is that, you know, black and mixed race players do make up a lot of football teams now, which is fantastic. The next level we need to get to is coaching. That's the next barrier, if you like. There are not enough black, Asian, people of colour doing coaching. And that is something that needs to change. And I don't want to wait for the next 10 years for that to happen because that's ridiculous. There are decent coaches out there now. And I know someone will say, yeah, but if you, you know, if you're the right person for the job, you'll get the job. Listen, let me tell you something within the football industry and as many other industries, it's very much about who you know. And if you're not part of that circle, then it's very hard to break through. And I am somebody who is very testament to that. Despite my family history, my surname has not given me that privilege to make my way through the football industry I've had to earn it and I've had to work for it so that idea of um the idea that you know we've reached the pinnacle in terms of black representation in football yes on the pitch as a football perspective but within the industry itself within governance we have nowhere near reached the level that we need to be at We spoke to Rodney Hines, who's the co-founder of the Football Blacklist, which you featured on in 2019 for Services to Football. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And one of the things that Rodney said as well is that we desperately need to see this representation, not just on the pitch, but in management, in coaching, in every level. How do you think that that we will get there? It's such a challenging one, to be honest with you, Fern, because football clubs are are private institutions. How they recruit is down to them. You know, we can't tell somebody how to recruit for a job. Obviously, they need to follow laws and, and in terms of employment law. But there's discussions about the Rooney Rule within um, the lower leagues, but it's a voluntary code. It's not something that's compulsory. What is that? Can you explain it a little? 
It was a rule that was created for American football by a chap called Dan Rooney. And it was when applications were opened for coaching positions that at least a number, I can't think of what the exact number is, it may be one or two, let's say for the sake of this, that had to come from a person of colour, a black person or an Asian person. Um, so it would allow someone the opportunity to at least get an interview in front of the decision maker. Doesn't mean it meant necessarily they meant that person got the job. It was just about being in front of that person, getting the opportunity to, to put your case forward. And it was something that's been toyed around back and forth for a long time over here. Did it need it? Because on the one hand, as I said, football institutions, they have their own recruitment processes. They follow employment law. They have their own recruitment processes. There's also the argument it's tokenism, that somebody should apply because of their coaching experience and their knowledge and on merit rather than being given a free pass, if you like. But also it's that argument of, well, if you're the right person for the job, you'll get that opportunity. I can't give you the stats and figures to say, has it worked? Because I don't know, but I, I welcomed it because at least it's, it's one baby step forward. And the argument about, well, if you're the best person for the job, then you should be judged on that. Well, I know, and the conversations I've had with people that work with industry, black coaches, they've applied for 10, 20, 30 jobs and and haven't even got an interview. And that's the point for me. It's actually getting in front of the person and putting your case forward. That's an opportunity within itself. If someone looks at your CV and they go, well, actually, you don't have the right coaching badges and then they kind of push your CV to the side and then you discover the person that's actually got the job hasn't got the coaching badges either, but they're a particular colour of skin, you're going to raise your eyebrows going, well, hang on a minute. What's that all about in my six tones? We have had black coaches. We've had Chris Hewton. We have had Sol Campbell and we've had various others as well. Hope Powell is the is the head coach for the uh, Brighton and Hove Albion women in the WSL. But we need more. It's just that that process of getting in front of the decision maker, that's where the blockage seems to be at the moment. It's going to happen, I think. I'm optimistic, but it's going to happen at a snail's pace, which I disagree with. You you mentioned women's football there. And black representation in women's football is something that we're also trying to see the history of, the long history of. And Emma Clark is a name that has started to come up. And academics are debating her origins, whether or not she's mixed race, whether she's black British, whether she's Asian British. But we do know that in 1895, there is an identifiable female player who is not white, who is playing football. And this is something that we need to expose, explore and celebrate. Do you think that uncovering these histories of black British female players, of of female players in general, is an important thing to go alongside, obviously, our history of of representation in, in the UK? At the beginning of our conversation, you and I talked about my love for history. And I remember sitting in the classroom learning about the Tudors. I mean, that was fine. Um, learning about Northern Ireland, which is important. And enjoying, I mean, obviously tragedy and everything, but I enjoyed learning about the history, about Northern Ireland and about our kings and queens and so on and so forth. The one thing I was never taught about in my school was black history. Now that has like, that has changed over the last few years. We now know that within the, the history curriculum, they talk about Mary Seacole. They talk about, I hope they talk about Arthur Walton. I understand he has part of the history curriculum now, but it's still not enough. 
And I think having somebody like Emma Clark would be fantastic. Because again, it would inspire young girls and young women to think that somebody of colour can play football. We have had women of colour, black and, and, and mixed race, play football at the highest level. Eni Luko is one, Rachel Yankee is another, Alex Scott is another. So it, it can be done. In, in terms of the WSL today, there's uh, Becky Spencer who plays for Spurs, uh, Rinsola Barajide, she plays for Liverpool in the Championship and there's various others as well. I think um, it's important to be seen and it's important that their contributions, particularly Emma Clark, is well known. Women's football has skyrocketed over the last few years or so, particularly after the World Cup, I'd say, in France for the England team. And no doubt we will be talking about their achievements over the years to come. But let's talk about Emma Clark as well and what she achieved and her role in society. Because she's a trailblazer, just like Arthur Wharton, just like Walter Tull, just like Jack Leslie and various others along the way. And look how long it took for Mary Seacole to be part of the history curriculum for schools. That is shocking. I know that there's campaigns at the moment to to expand black history in this country. As you rightly pointed out, Fern, we've been here for years. So it it does make sense. We are part of the uh, British, English, Welsh, Northern Irish, Scottish fabric. Let's tell the story. The abuse Anne-Marie's uncle faced in the 70s and 80s is the same abuse faced by Arthur Wharton and Walter Tull at the end of the 19th century and that we know our players still face today. So that's three different centuries that shows our black British footballers little to no change in how they are treated. And yet, they keep playing. Anne-Marie's point about black footballers playing at the highest level as being a way for our black British family to show that they have worth in our society is a really powerful one. And you need to ask yourself, as I do, when is it going to be enough? How much longer is this culture of racism and racial abuse going to be one we allow to flourish in our society? Remember what I told you earlier. There were 12 professional football clubs in 1888, and we know black players like Arthur Wharton were part of them from the very start. So one of the things we need to understand is that the history of black representation in football is the history of professional football. Acknowledging that and promoting these important histories hopefully will go some way to giving us a truly beautiful game, one we can be proud of and one that is shared and open to everyone. But, as history and our experts today have shown us, we still have a really long way to go. That's it for this episode of Not What You Thought You Knew. If you're enjoying the series, please help spread the word on social media using the hashtag NotWhatYouThought and tag at HistoryUK or at FernRiddell in your posts so we can see it and leave us a rating on your podcast app. For more on this or any of our episodes, head to skyhistory.co.uk for articles, clips and more. And finally, a big thank you to my guests, Rodney Hines and Anne-Marie Batson. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, with research by Mary Unze, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.